Welcome to God's Messenger Lighthouse Podcast. This is your host, Brother Scott Messenger, bringing you Chapter 4 from Part 1 of Secret Believers, What Happens When Muslims Believe in Christ, by Brother Andrew and Al Jansen. Chapter 4, Three Months Later. A Bible and a Quran lay open on the desk. A man in his thirties stroked his black beard as he stared at the text. This is incredible, he muttered to himself. The window was open, and noise of traffic drifted into Mustafa's apartment. <clears throat> he seemed unusually alert to sounds that normally provided a subconscious background noise. Cars and buses and trucks had distinctive horn tunes, and their constant beeps and blares performed a kind of sympathy symphony. He could almost tell each driver's mood, everything from the friendly little taps to long, angry blasts, none of which seemed to change the constant snarl of traffic that tried to maneuver through the narrow old streets of the city. Sometimes it seemed as though every vehicle were honking its displeasure at having to wait another 30 seconds before moving forward a few meters the oppressive heat of summer had not yet descended on the desert nation, and Mustafa's ceiling fan turned slowly on its lowest setting. The Muslims' call to prayer uh, sounded from the university mosque just two blocks away. Often he attended afternoon prayers there, followed by meetings with his Muslim Brotherhood disciples. Usually, they remained in the mosque, sitting in a circle on the floor and studying the Quran. But today, he couldn't make himself go and pray. He, who had insisted there, was never an excuse for a Muslim to miss prayers. Even when he was sick, he could pray with his eyes, opening and closing them to indicate kneeling and bowing toward Mecca. Today, he couldn't break away from his study. <clears throat> Mustafa leaned back in his chair and thought for a moment about his youth growing up in a village near Squaw al Kumis, which or what would his father think of him now? He had three brothers and four sisters, but his father had always expected the most from him. Mustafa had attended the Islamic school in the village, and his father had pushed him to memorize large portions of the Quran to earn the monetary prizes offered each time a student successfully recited three surahs. <clears throat> a cousin had recruited him for the Muslim Brotherhood, which had started in Upper e Egypt in the 1920s and spread to other countries throughout the Middle East. The cousin had fed his thirst for knowledge by giving him books by Hassan al-Banna, founder of the Muslim Brotherhood, and other fundamentalist thinkers such as Saeed Qatib, whose book Milestones, written while he was in prison, had inspired thousands of jihadists throughout the Muslim world. Over time, Mustafa had become too radical even for his father. The son had accused his parents of being unbelievers. When his father protested, 
I pray and fast and do everything required by the prophet, peace be upon him, Mustafa had countered, it is not enough, you have to confess that the society in which we live is infidel, and that everyone who doesn't pray is an atheist. Then he told his father, my mother is an unbeliever because she doesn't pray, so if you are a real Muslim, you have to divorce her because Islam forbids being married to an unbelieving woman. His father had struck him and banished him from the house, so he slept at the home of a fellow Muslim Brotherhood member. As part of their total abandonment to radical Islam, Mustafa and his friends had terrorized a small Christian community, stealing from Christian businesses in the suit al Qumis and surrounding villages. He hadn't considered it stealing. It was jihad. The Islamic text taught that Christians should either pay the jizya, a special tax levied on Jews and Christians, or embrace Islam, or they should be killed. The fact that his country was more tolerant of the dhimmi made him angry. That was the problem. No Muslim country was really fully committed to Islam and Sharia law. The Brotherhood was determined to correct that. Mustafa had carried this message to surrounding nations in the Middle East. He was passionate in declaring that kings and emirs and high government officials must rule by Islam alone and reject any semblance of Western legal systems. His outspokenness had landed him in prison, after which he was deported back to his home country. Since then, he'd concentrated his efforts on the university campuses in the capital city, recruiting for the Brotherhood. The sheikh who led the local cell group liked Mustafa's commitment and harnessed his articulate intellect by having him write several small tracts. <clears throat> it was one of these assignments that led to his crisis. He'd heard about some Christian missionaries who were arrested by trying to convert Muslims to Christianity. This had made Mustafa so angry that the sheikh had suggested he write a book revealing the distortions of the Christian faith. To do that, to do that Mustafa had to read the Bible. He set out to prove the Bible had been altered or even corrupted, as many Islamic scholars taught. But how could he prove the book was false if he couldn't compare it with the original? He had drawn from critiques of the holy book by several writers, but when he looked up the verses the authors referenced in their arguments, they were different, or in some cases, didn't even exist. Then the sheikh had pointed him to the work of the Izhar al-Haq, whose arguments seemed more rational, but his book had the same mistakes as those of the other scholars. For the last several days, Mustafa had decided to concentrate on the prof prophecies in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and the Injil that referenced the prophet Muhammad, though he couldn't find the name Muhammad in the holy book. There were 26 texts that supposedly pointed to him, 
Eagerly he had read the first one, Genesis 49.10, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he come to uh, Shiloh. Uh, had said that Shiloh was Muhammad, but when Mustafa had investigated to prove this linguistically and rhetorically and legally, he concluded that Isa, the Christ, clearly, clearly fulfilled the prophecy much more than Muhammad did. He had turned to Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. Al-Haq had explained that Isaac's sons and Ishmael's sons were brothers, and thus Muhammad was a brother of Isaac's sons. But when he'd referenced the Quran, it said that the prophet would be from the Arab people and spoke Arabic and speak Arabic. The Torah text spoke of uh, a prophet from the Hebrews who spoke Hebrew. If this prophet was Muhammad, then I would distrust the Quran. That was a dangerous thought. Mustafa had exhausted himself with study and concluded that none of the 26 texts spoke of Muhammad, and now he stared at this verse from Surah, the table of the Quran. People of the book, you will attain nothing until you observe the Torah and the gospel and that which is revealed to you from your Lord. The Quran affirmed the authority of the Jewish and Christian scriptures. He turned to Surah 384 and read, Say, we believe in God and what is revealed to us, in that which was revealed to Abraham and Ishmael, to Isaac and Jacob and the tribes, and, that, and in that which their Lord gave Moses and Jesus and the prophets. We discriminate against none of them. To him we have surrendered ourselves. But how could the Christian God be the same as Allah? He read the, he'd read in the, the Gospels, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in, in heaven. Allah commanded exactly the opposite in the Quran. In the Surah, Repentance, God commanded, Slay the idolaters wherever you find them, arrest them, besiege them, and lie in ambush everywhere for them. It was impossible that the two gods were one and the same. It was impossible that the two books, the Holy Bible and Quran, were both right. While the two books agreed on some things, the differences were startling. One of them had to be wrong. The prayer time was over, and the flow of activity on the street was back to normal. But now Mustafa knew what he had to do. Pray. Allah... God, which is, which is the real book? Show me which book is right. A peace washed over him, and Mustafa felt confident that God would reveal the truth. Boutros enjoyed the quiet of his study. When he rose early on most mornings, the apartment where he and his wife, Nadiria, lived was small but comfortable. One of the two Tiny bedrooms served as his study, with bookshelves, a small desk, and a love seat that also converted into a bed for occasional uh, guests. It was comforting to be surrounded by all 
the commentaries and theological books he had collected during his years of study in England. The authors were his friends and mentors who provided direction in this lonely work. Eventually, he would have to pack most of these books and find a new office. He and Nadira had been married for six months, and two months ago his wife had given him the wonderful news that she was pregnant. Before long, this room would become a nursery. Soon after their wedding, Nadira had secured a job near their apartment as an elementary school teacher. That job, along with a small stipend from an organization in Holland and occasional gifts from a few friends in England, provided their modest income. Also, Boutros had received a small inheritance when his father died, including a piece of land that was rented to farmers near Sukhumus. It bothered Boutros that he couldn't provide more for Nadira. She had grown up in a relatively wealthy family, and several times her father had offered him a job in the family business. Now their lives were about to change significantly. In this country, once the first child was born, women rarely returned to work. But when Boutros had wondered aloud if he should accept his father-in-law's offer, Nadira wouldn't hear of it. God has called you here, she assured him, and I will help you. We are in this together. We must trust God that he will provide for all of our needs. There was so much to think about. Boutros had visited almost every church in the country. He'd slipped innumerable cups of tea and coffee. Uh, he'd sipped innumerable cu cups of tea and coffee and listened to pastors and priests and lay leaders who were eager to pour out their hearts to a sympathetic peer. As a result, he learned a lot. Many of the pastors, especially from more rural areas, had very limited theological education. Most had never attended seminary or Bible school. Sometimes they earned their position because they were the only literate person in the congregation. There was also a lack of pastoral resources, commentaries, and other tools that pastors in the West took for granted. Working through the Bible forum in a neighboring Arab country, Boutros had obtained several valuable resources and distributed them to pastors for their personal libraries. He had also secured copies of God's Smuggler in Arabic with the macho title translated in spite of the impossible. That, Boutros felt, described his situation. He made sure that the literate young people in his church in the capital city and around the country had it a chance to be inspired by Brother Andrew's story of faith. Besides considering the needs of his family, Boutros worried about also worried also about the resources he would need to expand the work. There were no extra funds to start any large programs, especially after the arrival of Ahmed uh, sent him sent to him by the priest in uh, Al Kumas. Through a landlord at his church, he had found a tiny apartment for the young convert. Ahmed had searched 
for work but had found only odd jobs. He looked to Boutros for spiritual guidance and once or twice a week a meal. Somehow God had provided all that was needed for his family, for the literature, for his travels around the country, for Amid and others who came looking for help. But if Boutros was going to implement his vision, he would need a lot more resources. Nadira slipped into the room. You are up earlier than usual, she said. She sat down next to Boutros and laid her hand on his shoulder. I'm sorry I woke you. I have a lot to think and pray about. How are you feeling this morning? A little better. It's been nearly three months, so maybe the morning sickness will begin to let up. Would you like some tea? Nadira smiled her assent, and Boutros padded to the tiny kitchen to prepare a pot of tea that he hoped would calm his wife's queasy stomach. He knew that many men in his culture never spent time in the kitchen. Boutros and Nadira had talked a great deal about how their marriage needed to reflect their Christian faith. Boutros didn't accept the popular perspective in which men viewed their wives as property. In his country, few women worked in businesses or shops. They were supposed to stay home, have babies, raise children, and have their heads covered any time they left home. It's not that family was any less important to them as Christians. On the contrary, Nadira was more was much more to Brutros than a bearer of his children. She was a friend and confidant, and she was able to minister to women. They were partners in this work, and Brutros often sought his wife's counsel. Brutros returned to the study with a tray containing a pot of steaming tea, two cups, milk and sugar. While she waited, Nadira had dozed on the love seat. Now as her husband set the tray on his desk, she stretched and sat up. After she had been served and had taken a couple sips of tea, Nadira asked, So why is my husband getting up so early? I am trying to formulate a plan to send to Brother Andrew to get his counsel. He looked at his wife and smiled. Then I need to find financial support for my growing family, and I'm going to need some staff to help me do this work. Nadira turned to face her husband, tucking her feet under her. So what are you thinking? she asked. The number one need is training for pastors. Most of them work alone, and they have had little or no seminary or Bible school training. I've talked with the bishops and denominational leaders. I want to organize a conference, a retreat maybe, once or twice a year, where pastors can come and be refreshed and encouraged and get some teaching. The leaders are encouraging me in this. I'm thinking of inviting Brother Andrew to be the first speaker. That sounds like a good start. There are many more needs, and we can't address them at all at once, but I'm particularly concerned about churches in rural areas. In some villages, churches have, churches have no pastor or priest. The conditions are just too severe for a young man to settle there with his family. The poverty means congregations can barely give even a small amount each month. Often, there are no schools 
or at best a mosque that only offers teaching in Quran. For a man who wants to educate his children, the opportunities are in towns or cities, so I'm concerned about the state of churches and villages, and I'm thinking about how lay leaders need to be raised up to help fill the gap. Also, too many Christians are illiterate. They can't read their Bibles, and they know very little about their faith. They are unable to get better jobs and improve their economic situation, which means the church is severely limited in its influence. So my husband is going to change the social fabric of society? Niger chuckled. He's going to solve the problem of illiteracy and improve the financial health of the Christian community? Boutros had to smile. His wife loved to tease him, and her humor helped him keep a balanced perspective. We'll start small, he said. I'd like to experiment with starting uh, starting literacy centers in a couple of villages. Since many of the rural churches don't have pastors, perhaps we can help strengthen those churches by teaching adult Christians how to read and write. Maybe later we can provide job training programs as well. You don't have any facilities or trainers. I know. There are so many questions. That's why I'm up early. There is so much to pray about. Nadira set her empty teacup on the floor, reached out, and took her husband's hand in hers. Well, I'm here to help. We can begin by praying together about this. The support of a good wife was a precious gift, and Boutros breathed a silent prayer of thanksgiving for Nadira. There's one other thing we need to pray about, said Boutros, the young convert Amid. Next time, Chapter 5, Three Months Later.